Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anthony Cao. My guest today is Hyun Kim. Hyun is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Department of Asian Cultures and Languages. Her research focuses on Korean cinema and its intersections with activist movements. Hyun addresses these topics in her first book, Celluloid Democracy, Cinema and Politics in Cold War South Korea, published October 2023, by the University of California Press. Before South Korea became the democratic soft power juggernaut that it is today with popular dramas and movies like Parasite, it underwent over four decades of authoritarian rule during the Cold War. It's this period that celluloid democracy focuses on. Through a series of case studies, the book explores how diverse figures from teachers to filmmakers to activists negotiated film production, and distribution under authoritarian rule. Thank you, Hyun Kim, for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Let's start off by talking about the title of your book, since it's a rather concise way to describe what it's all about. Uh, What is celluloid democracy? And can you tell us more about why celluloid democracy is quite noteworthy within the context of Cold War South Korea? Cellular democracy uh, refers to multiple things. Um, It's a historical phenomenon that emerged out of the specific South South Korean Cold War context um, between the end of World War II and 1980s. And this is a time during which the country's democracy as a political institution um, had been limitedly enacted, and it had often been manipulated as nationalist and anti-communist notion of freedom by, um, you know, U.S. military government and um, South Korean states. And this got me thinking about, you know, uh, what are the cases that South Koreans explicitly and implicitly refused to take such notion of democracy as a norm during this period? And I was particularly drawn to um, the tools deployed by these people in claiming culture as resistance to reign. So actors of my book, uh, from filmmakers to you know exhibitors and audiences of the many cultural projects, um, try to reappropriate spaces and concepts offered by these regimes of power on their own terms. And even if they didn't succeed at you know, deconstructing these spaces and reconfiguring concepts all the time. I think it's important to create a sort of map where we can see the struggle for other democracies and the difficult choices faced by individual and collective film workers. Um, the movements that they spawn um, became strategic devices and resources for people um, to formulate ideological and effective orientations that opposed imperialist and nationalist notions of democracy. More 
abstractly, um, cellular democracy is a vision of and a vision for democracy that centers questions of representation and distribution. Um, and it's a vision developed individually and collectively, you know, in order to bring about very abstract ideals of democracy, such as diversity and equality. And again, these ideals didn't necessarily overlap with the terms and projects forced by the U.S. and Korean states. Um, I focused on several, you know, ruptures in history where actors my study faced um, examine and you know even push back against any prepackaged um, scripts that appear to be you know natural, just given. In fact, many of them were a you know they were able to identify and engage with the top-down and very empty notions of development, um, you know, freedom and modernization. And these people try to realize the values in these terms in their own context of filmmaking and showing. So I argue that these struggles, the struggles, you know, the strategies of struggle, the processes and the visions, um, these were crystallized in what I call cellular democracy. And the radical potential of this really relates to how to identify and resist normative relationships between culture and politics. Um, cinema had long been conscripted to normalize unrepresentative and unequal political structures. And these was, of course, you know, shaped by imperialism, um, the state patriarchy, capitalism, and other hegemonic systems. Um, but this wasn't an inherent um, property of the medium and the ongoing recognition and resistance to this historical trend can generate horizons of alternative possibility for both culture and politics. And I do think that that's what my actors of the study believed and also what I wanted to illuminate through their stories and the book. So you were talking a bit about how the scope of your study starts around 1945, uh, and you know that's where the first chapter of Cellular Democracy roughly starts, where you are exploring how the U.S. military authorities who were there at the time in uh, the southern part of the Korean Peninsula brought certain movies uh, to Korea to bolster this image of democracy. Um, what did Koreans think about these films? And the general phenomenon of American authorities' controls over what Koreans got to see at the cinema? Um, well, I mean, Korea wasn't seen as a really important place in the you know, U.S. plan during the immediate you know, post-war era. And, um, but it was clear from the very beginning that U.S. power presented themselves as a liberator and it actively promoted its you know, egalitarian principle. Um, in their logic, you know, Koreans under Japanese rule had long been suffered with an individual and economic freedom. Um, they lost their land, heritage, language, and name. But America is different. Like we, we came to democratize, we came to demilitarize Korea. We're not, you know, um, oppressing anyone if you would cooperate with us. Americans love freedom and equality. <laughs> um, but Koreans saw this promise with great caution. They didn't passively receive American gospel of democracy because they, you know, they were cognizant of the growing gap between this 
idealized image of America and what occupation authorities were actually doing and what Koreans perceived as their land. Um, so I focus specifically on those, you know, who made, showed and watched American films under um, U.S. occupation and how they grappled with the contradictions in American notions of, of freedom and equality. And these contradictions, for example, were made legible through the way Korean film workers reflected on their colonial experience, especially the colonial control of the cinema, um, through what they felt as sort of a repeat, like the reanimation of this control during the U.S. occupation. And of course, those who most actively um, participated in this criticism were filmmakers and critics who didn't really see any reasonable kind of redistribution of resources or infrastructures coming anytime soon in the southern half of the peninsula. But there were movie boards whose perspectives were less explicit, but nonetheless um, sensed American ex exceptionalism in, in many different ways. Um, one caveat is that we don't really have a very comprehensive data or survey of local audience, but reviews and comments by viewers can tell us a little bit about the gap between what these American films were supposed to promote and how they were perceived in Korean theaters. Um, and one thing that I want to mention here is until the American films being shown again, uh, in Korean theaters in 1945, Koreans had little to no access to contemporary Hollywood films for several years because, you know, the Japanese imperial government didn't tolerate American films dominating only, you know, uh, local theaters. So imagine, like, you thought you would finally get to watch newer films, not those from the late, you know, 1920s or, you know, not those films in a kind of a terrible conditions. Um but you actually received a, you know, a batch of older films that were so overused. So that was one thing that outraged Korean viewers at a time. Um, in the meantime, um, films sent to Korea were not homogenous at all when it comes to genre and style. But what seems quite palpable across these films was an emphasis on American liberty and egalitarianism. You know. Many of these films show how, you know, um, hardworking, you know, healthy, um, vital and positive mindset people had built America and how people in this society um, had entertained freedom to express themselves and how, you know, despite all the economic and social differences, they had to cooperate with each other to make their place better. And of course, these messages didn't entirely shaped Korean viewers' perception of the United States as much as occupation authorities had hoped. Um, in the chapter, I gave two specific cases where American authorities sort of miscalculate impacts this, you know, popular Hollywood features could potentially make in Korea. Um, so, for example, a romance between a rich elite woman and a man from a humble background can be seen as liberating in one context, uh, but um, it wasn't really seen that way in in another context, which um, I'm talking about South Korean theater. Um, it's true that Americans extensively use, you know, motion pictures in their 
um, information programs, and these programs strongly reflected the American belief in in the educational capacity of cinema for what they saw as quote unquote undemocratic Korean population. But again, these programs didn't achieve success at least for the first two years. And I think this explains why occupation authorities ended up feeling skeptical um, about whether American films were actually useful in Korea. And starting in the late 1947, this skepticism really led them to promote more of local film production um, that's aligned with their political orientation. And um, by that time, most vocal critics of U.S. You know, film policy had already headed up to the north, where a national film studio was already built, and Soviets were much more hands off and more supportive of you know decolonizing local film culture, at least during that time. Well, it's interesting you bring up education uh, in some of your remarks here and and usefulness of cinema because there's this other dimension to the U.S.-Korea media exchange during the Cold War. Um, which is this implementation of audiovisual education. Tell us more about how Korean teachers and these educational movies fit together into your discussion of celluloid democracy. Um, sure. Um, Americans and pro-American Korean elites continue to preach the idea that cinema and other audiovisual media would, you know, should be used used to implant democracy in post-war South Korea. Um, so small film projectors at schools and churches and you know, tunnels all operated under the assumption that uh, motion picture was a powerful and efficient vehicle of mass education. And the teachers whom I wrote about really reckoned with this assumption in a critical and self-reflective way. And before answering your question, I have to admit that um, this chapter about audiovisual education was the most difficult one for me to write. Um, because until the very later stage of interviewing former teachers whom I position as you know, audiovisual education practitioners in my book, I wasn't really sure what I would do with their stories. Um, I interviewed more than seven teachers, but ended up focusing on some of these teachers who had relatively vivid memories of their early teaching years, um, and also who identify themselves, not just teachers, but also community builders. As I was writing, um, it became quite clear that these Korean teachers share the perspective of American progressive education theorists who believe democracy means active participation by all people. Um, in you know social, political, and, and economic decisions that will affect their lives. And here is where the education of children became really important, right? Because it should help them make best decisions for them and others. And in order to do that, you know, teachers should be able to recognize each individual for their needs, abilities, and interests. And at the same time, they also should be able to help kids to understand and participate in their community to achieve um, a common good. So Korean teachers really valued these ideals, but they found it extremely difficult to realize them in, in, in their context. And they even noticed that 
you know, there's unpower, un, unfair power dynamic um, that these American approaches were literally just thrown to them as something that they must adopt without question. Um, most importantly, um, these teachers didn't, didn't share the dominant American conviction that there is a greater educational capacity in cinema compared to other teaching tools. Korean teachers saw this capacity as not something inherent in the media, but as one that must be activated by both teachers and students. So even when they used American films and method, they, you know, they did with great caution and start to make small changes. Many of these American um, educational films from the 50s emphasize how students and teachers can co-create classroom as a community and cinema as a technology plays a really important role in cultivating this nurturing and dynamic environment. And American you know, education, educators and practitioners in Korea uh, were sent um, to Korea um, as the Peabody team. They actually you know, mobilized these resources in their workshops and lectures that were given to um, Korean teachers. Um, so, my interlocutors, you know, the, the, these teachers use some of them in their teaching. But the problem was Korean teachers um, found these films really difficult to be placed in their classroom as they were. So they had to, you know, reestablish a context where these films were brought in for students. Um, they had to appropriate this type of films to initiate a completely new conversation. So, for example, one teacher had students engage with a set of um, self-reflective prompts, like why did they come to school and, you know, why did they want to learn and, and what were the barriers for them to speak up in classroom um, or, you know, what modalities or mindsets would be useful for them to tackle those barriers. So, you know, when using this type of prompts that um, help them to center the American focus in these films, these teachers manage to facilitate conversations in a way that cultivates students' capacity to think and speak um, in, in a collective setting. And allowing more diverse you know, voices and ideas to enter the classroom in this way was the first step toward you know, um, changing um, education to many of these teachers. Another important dimension of this teacher's work is that they reconfigured the cinema as a democratic medium for community building outside the classroom. Um, at first, they wanted to create some sort of a support group um, as young teachers in a very vertical um, school system. They wanted to find other teachers in their district who would like to do something different or share you know, teaching tools, but then as they were, you know, forming a small community of their own, they came to recognize a major problem in the way the governments distributed um, the audiovisual education resources. And back then, um, starting in the late 1950s and, and early uh, 60s, South Korean government significantly increased its investment in audiovisual education. They purchased more projectors, made more education films, and built um, specific institutes for um, 
this type of education in major cities, but these are all executed without concerns about how audiovisual education could actually benefit both teachers and students. And besides this issue, what really concerned these teachers was the lack of question about equity. Um, the bureaucrats didn't do anything about lowering the barriers for teachers to access available materials. So these teachers felt that they had to do something about it. Um, and I found it very fascinating that, you know, what moved them to put together um, a catalog of available sources in their district and other relevant sources, for example, was their care about access. And by creating more grassroots resources about audiovisual education and acting as sort of a knowledge bank, they opened doors for other teachers to be able to experiment with their classroom work. So to me, these teachers set cellular democracy in motion. They cared really deeply about clearing barriers for students to represent themselves and other teachers to access what they perceived as public resources. Well, we have these teachers clearing barriers, but uh, perhaps from another dimension, there is the creation of barriers. And you know, since we're talking about the early 1960s at this point, uh, that's also when Park Chung-hee came to power. Um, and you know he is uh, very famous in terms of uh, economics, but also a lot of uh, interesting military things, shall we say. Um, and in many ways, he was even more authoritarian than his predecessor. Uh, so as you discuss, it is not actually until Park Chung-hee's administration, um, starting in the early 1960s, that South Korea starts seeing the institution of formal film censorship mechanisms. Uh, Tell us about these mechanisms and how filmmakers navigated those during the 1960s and, and 1970s. Um, sure. Um, from the early post-war era, um, any film that was to be screened in public had to receive approval from the government. Um, and starting in the 1963, with the promulgation of the first comprehensive film law, the government banned production or distribution of any film that portrayed the communists in a favorable light, um, violated uh, public moral codes, or spread fake news about the government. And filmmakers and industry leaders um, have not been happy about this regulation, of course. Um, what the state censors aim to ban was direct enough, but the way they went about it was quite unclear to them. Um, censors could just say, oh, this character is antisocial or, or this character is just, you know, pre-communist without any specific definition or clarification. Um, and then what happened in the middle of 1960s was the state revised the film law and added a pre-filming censorship. And this action was justified as a way to avoid, you know, painstaking rewriting of the entire scripts or, you know, reshoots of scenes or even bans on entire films. But in any case, film companies were now required to submit scripts to the Board of Censorship before um, these scripts were filmed. 
So the censors now had three options when evaluating a script, even before evaluating a film. They could approve, approve the script, require certain revisions to be made before approval for filming, or disapprove the script entirely. The revised law also replaced more um, collegial um, protocols of gatekeeping with more centralized procedures. Um, previously, there was a network of script reviewers um, that worked as a public mechanism to provide some feedback to filmmakers before the government's former review. Um, but with the revision that authorized the government to be the sole content determining agent of censorship on paper, the members of this network lost most of their power to um, the censorship authority. And again, filmmakers were terrified by this move. Um, in their perspective, the review criteria were still loose enough to ban any film that was considered, quote unquote, dangerous to the state power and its ideologies. And the last article of the film law frightened filmmakers even more because it says, you know, the, any other detailed criteria of censorship could be determined by the president. So up to this point, I mean, the exercise of state power in cinema had already caused filmmakers to be nervous when they made feature sets, um, especially those about the Korean War or anything that includes communist characters. Um, it's really disheartening to see when one of the popular directors of the era even admitted that he had been nerve-wracked because all he could think of was how to avoid cuts during every second of shooting. So I see why he was driven by fear and anxiety about this new um, process of censorship, but also want to hang on to a possibility that what can be seen on screens is not always single-handedly determined by the state. It's not just filmmakers being subject to changing protocols and practices, um, so are censors, right? And even in this allegedly more serious, more you know, violent process, the censors and filmmakers nonetheless participate in a conversation that constantly shaped and you know reshaped all relevant, you know, film texts. Because both scripts and film prints were to be reviewed, um, this dual process of censorship actually generated even more back and forth conversations between censors and filmmakers. And of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that censors and filmmakers stood on equal grounding. But what I'm trying to say is that when the state guidelines of censorship were subject to an individual censor's um, interpretation, there could be room for the filmmakers to interpret them as well as the censor's language. Filmmakers could read you know, what they were supposed to you know, follow differently from the written or spoken codes. And they could represent their you know, positioning to censors through communication during the censorship process. And I saw this possibility in the case of a 1968 film titled A Day Off. Um, this is a film by um, director Iman Hee that has long been known as one of the most scandalous cases where censors required filmmakers to revise the script more than twice and didn't approve shooting. So filmmakers 
had to just go ahead and made the film. Um, they try to accommodate the censor's suggestions as possible as they could. Ultimately, they didn't let this film go public. They stopped revising the film as the censors would want them to do. And I found this process, especially the filmmakers' unwillingness to do more harm to their work, um, can challenge um, the previous understanding of filmmakers as mere victims of state censorship. Um, and I'm talking about a perspective that operates under the assumption that filmmakers had little to no freedom in this process. And in my book, I sort of tackle this notion of freedom that we tend to take for granted and ask, you know, when the meaning of freedom was primarily determined by the state power, what other kinds of freedom filmmakers could imagine in their power? Um, and I, I mean, this is a, this is a really interesting chapter for me to write. Um, I mean, just, um, to say the list and I would love to hear, you know, uh, readers thought on it. <laughs> yeah, certainly a very interesting chapter to read as well, given the very specific examples of the film and, and sort of censorship feedback and such, um, you know, while we're talking about the Park Chung-hee regime, um, you know, his his rule and frankly much of South Korea's Cold War history and perhaps also contemporary society is quite patriarchal uh, and, and conservative in that way. So um, even with this patriarchy existing, um, as you explore, there seem to be still some instances of film expression that challenge such patriarchal norms. Um, can you talk more about your exploration of the Haidu Women's Film Collective and you know who were they, what did they do, and how do they fit into this broader narrative around celluloid democracy? Um, yes, um, Kaidu is a South Korean women's collective that was formed in early 1970s. Um, there were other film collectives that were drawn to make non-conventional, non-industrial, and non-narrative films at a time. Um, but Kaidu stood out among other groups in many different ways. One thing is um, it's very much committed to what its members called Shirom Yowa, which literally means experimental cinema. Kind of prefer this term over other terms like avant-garde or underground. And all of these terms were used by filmmakers and writers at a time, but Kaido envisioned a fundamentally new um, configuration of a cinema specifically through Shirom. To the collective, Shiham meant um, testing out an existing order of things and giving rise to something new. And both, you know, um, actions like taking, uh, testing the old and generating the new had to complement each other to achieve the ultimate goal of um, experimentation, which is to undermine the dominant idea of what film should do or, or film what film should be. It's also distinctively a woman's collective. And in the words of one of the founders, it emerged out of a thoroughly male-centered world of art and cinema. If other contemporary film collectives generally pursued reforming film languages, 
Kai Du gravitate more towards changing the male-dominant landscape of film culture. Um, their, their concern about power um, was expressed through filmmaking. And unfortunately, I mean, most of their films um, have been believed to be lost but it's still possible to look at other sources such as journalistic accounts and interviews with filmmakers and audiences. And these materials demonstrate that Kaidu's um, sense of filmmaking as a feminist labor was really pronounced early on. For example, um, a 1974 film over criticized the society that constantly objectified women and their bodies. Um, the film's frame is divided horizontally into three parts and a young woman's eye in close-up are located at a center. And then the top and bottom shows, you know, um, set of commercial images of a woman like movie poster that feature an image of almost naked woman. Um, the the um, woman's eyes at a center directly look at the audience. And to us, it looks like she's being caught between the images of hypersexualized women, as though she's sort of, you know, imprisoned by those objects of gaze that occupy the space. And I think, you know, this is a quite powerful critique of what it means to be a young woman in a system that capitalized on eroticized and misogynist figures of a woman. Um, Kaido's concern about power also expanded through their programming that opened up a space that's dedicated to discussing women's cinema. For example, they put together a really important symposium about women and cinema in 1975. Um, and this was the first public event of its kind on this topic. And they um, interrogated um, the exclusionary culture of industry most specifically the film industry's gatekeeping had long prevented women from building careers in cinema, and it contributed to what Kaidu saw as the absence of women on screens. And these issues were never publicly acknowledged up until this point. Um, but Kaidu organized a roundtable to address this obstacle in public. They organized a roundtable where to order film women filmmakers um, spoke of their struggle. And these women who had been credited with being the first woman to direct a Korean feature revealed the constraints they faced in making their debut. And during the film's production, they faced um, numerous aggression, you know, targeting them as a female director at almost every stage. And even borrowing equipment or, you know, um, Reserving recording rooms was extremely difficult for them because most resources were under the control of male film workers. And even after their debut films succeed, um, succeeded at the box office, they confronted so many barriers to financing their next projects. And these experiences eventually forced them to leave the country. These women uh, really testified to the toll of cracking the glass ceiling of the field um, and, 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 you know, really stimulated honest conversations among the participants about the patriarchal system that pushed women to the edge.
Um, what's really interesting to me is that Kaidu viewed this structural problem um, as something that had enabled the stereotyped images of women in Korean cinema, especially during the 1970s when uh, sex films dominated um, the industry. In these films, um, female protagonists are often portrayed as sexual objects through a masculine and voyeuristic lens. And honestly, I can go and uh, go and you know go on and on about this genre and Kaido's critique. Um, but what I really wanted to highlight through my writing is that um, Kaido provoked um, critical questions about the unfair power relations in the industry and lack of diversity in figure of women in cinema. And unfortunately, these questions are still very relevant today. Yeah, certainly. I think anyone who follows uh, Korean politics and cinema uh, will know that there are many of these same critiques to be had, uh, in addition to, I'm sure, other countries as well. Uh, so you know, a lot of cross-cultural learnings. Um, besides Kaidu as a film collective, though, you do also dive into another film collective, um, which is called the Seoul Film Collective. So what is that? Uh, and how does it showcase the development of cellular democracy? Um, the Seoul Film Collective initially um, started as a film club at the Seoul National University, um, which is the country's most, you know, prestigious university, and in the late 1970s, and then it sort of grew into an independent film collective in the next, you know, couple of years. This collective was not a homogenous group when it comes to each member's background and political orientation. Um, but what tied them together was the concern about their media landscape that constantly silenced the state violence and harnessed certain genre of the films to sort of depoliticize viewers. They were particularly drawn to representation of the marginalized, the peasant and urban low-wage workers because mainstream media rarely showed the live experience of these people. And when it did, they typically appeared as passive um, victims of the state's capitalist modernization projects. Um, those old film collective members came to see this as a crisis of representation, a crisis that mirrored the logics of the state and the market that regulated what could be seen and heard in public space. So to challenge this, um, the filmmakers picked out um, eight millimeter and 60 millimeter cameras to make what they called new cinema. Um, their vision of new cinema included, um, first of all, a, a radically different production mode from those of the mainstream media. This meant for them to work more collaboratively as a group, not letting a single author govern the other people. They stick to small budget, independent production style, um, they also try to challenge the grammar and language of commercial cinema by, you know, rejecting like, seamless editing and linear pacing, you know, these elements they saw as reinforcing the conventional media's narrative structure and style. At the same time, their work embodied 
a deliberate process of building dialogical relationship between filmmakers and protagonists of their films. And I analyzed three films in my book, um, and one of them, a, a 1984 film, Water Text, um, particularly stood out to me because it's the collective's first attempt to make cinema with farmers and their families as collaborators. The filmmakers spent a significant amount of time with the peasant and participated in their you know, daily activities in the farming community. And this whole process shaped the tone, style, and composition of the entire film. Um, and it's fascinating that it's not really harnessing film the, the farmers as objects of the film. Um, filmmakers really put them at the center of the frame throughout, and the the camera traces um, the daily lives of farmers who were protesting against the local government's unfair tax system. Um, and it really focused on like how politically savvy and active these farmers were. Um, in many ways, I think this film provides us with a really rich sort of reservoir of farmers' experience and memory and life that were not really shown in any of mainstream media. The Soul Film Collective's concern about representation also led them to think more seriously about how to create an independent network of film distribution and exhibition especially, you know, the films like theirs. The fundamental problem with um, the existing, like, commercial channel channel of distribution and exhibition is that cinema in various forms, like film prints and which as tapes, I mean, it's circulated merely as a commodity. And in this process, viewers were were often positioned as consumers with little to no other option to see films produced outside this commercial market. So the collective members envisioned networks of small film creators and consumers that would enable more sustainable film ecology for all of them. They wanted to build an organic system of collaboration at all stages from production to exhibition. And this vision was at least partially translated into a series of small film festivals um, and fundraising events where um, the collective members um, showcase their works um, across different college campuses. Um, the Soul Film Collective's desire for this alternative um, distribution and activation network did not come to fruition in its time, but it influenced the next generation's sort of countercultural media festivals and grassroots, you know, um, cinematics and videotechs that really started to thrive in the 1990s. Mm. Well, Right before we get to the 1990s, we have a year that those who are familiar with modern Korean history may know very well, which is 1987. And a lot of people cite that as this turning point in Korea's journey from authoritarianism into democracy. Um, 
But to what extent is this year really a turning point uh, as you explore inside of your book? And can you tell us more about how you know, these, there are these different films that may explore whether or not this concept of a post-1987 Korea uh, is, is valid or to what extent it should hold water? Um, well, thanks for this important and necessary question. Um, when it comes to institutional politics, yes, the year of 1987 was a turning point in the country's history of democratization. Um, movement activists, opposition parties, and ordinary citizen participants formed a broad alliance and demanded an end to the military rule and state violence. So those in power eventually stepped down and agreed to revise the constitution in a way that limited the presidency to a single five-year term. It finally guaranteed citizens the right to express opposition and guaranteed workers basic rights and a minimum wage system. It reduced presidential powers and increased uh, legislative and um, judicial authority. And he promised a set of reforms to democratize society. But the fundamental structure of the society didn't change. Um, Representational and redistributed justice wasn't the priority for those in power in the successive government. And I frankly wasn't surprised that 2016 candlelight movement didn't ignite radical changes in both political institution and civil society. Just like 1987, it was an important momentum, but there was little concern about other than, you know, Austin, the um, incumbent, um, uh, incumbent, you know, president, what kind of society these protesters would like to live And in order to realize that vision or multiple visions, how they can mobilize their power beyond the sites of protest and beyond the very liminal space of internet forums where more progressive political discourses were um, believed to be thriving. Since then, um, I've noticed that more than several South Korean blockbuster films turned to the past. Uh, particularly to the historical experience of the so-called ordinary people. One tendency across these films is a strong nostalgic gaze at the past as a survivor. One such kind of film is All to My Father, and of course it came out before the Candlelight Movement took place, but I'm still having a bit hard time wrapping my head around um, this time, uh, this film, and it's a remarkable box office success. It's an um, unabashedly sentimental journey through some of the most important and difficult times in South Korea's modern history. And I can see that nostalgia, especially for middle-aged viewers in their 50s and older, nostalgia was definitely the driving force behind its commercial success, but it's quite striking how Dangerously, this film replicates the nationalist perspective on the post-1945. The perspective that I'm talking about is, you know, open, um, goes like, you know, Korea had gone through a lot, 
but it rose from one of the poorest countries to the one of the largest economy, um, a cultural powerhouse in the world today. So let bygones be bygones. Um, there's another tendency across the films, especially the films set in the authoritarian era. Um, the 2017 films like A Taxi Driver in 1987, When the Day Comes, um, these films all focus on a trajectory of one or multiple individuals who went against, witnessed, or involved um, the ruling power's repression of civilians. And they're not really, you know, focused, they're not really focusing on the lives of well-known political authority or activist leaders. These films present how, you know, common people come to recognize themselves as an agent of the political action. Um, and these films also tend to represent the past as rigorously as possible. Um, they aim to bring the past event on the screen, like using photographs and archival video footage from the era being filmed. So it's not really uh, nostalgic. Um, I mean, these films often emphasize how actions of ordinary people could change the world in the past and encourage the contemporary viewers to honor their past actions. But as I wrote in the conclusion of the book, um, these blockbuster films fail to generate any critical questions, any self-reflective questions on the position of filmmakers or the position of viewers. I mean, who are these audiences that entertain the, this restorative or even nostalgic gaze when we are invited to identify with these gaze? It's quite easy to just believe that you know these these difficult pasts were just complete, but were they really? I mean, earlier this morning I read news about how the victims of state violence in the 1980 were, you know, really forced to deal with their own trauma and backlash against them, and backlash is not even close to what they had been dealing with. I mean, systemic denier and distortion of the memory of these survivors has been there. And now with the populist media platforms that have aggressively spread fake news about these difficult pasts, I mean, I couldn't help but ask myself, like, who are we when we consume these pieces of difficult past being rendered in spectacles on screen? Um, the, the 2010 film titled Yongsan, um, was one of the very few films on the 1980s or pro, you know, pro-democracy movement that really provoked questions about this position of audience, this position of the director. It really powerfully asked why we find some sort of comfort in treating these past movements as complete businesses when the conditions of violence and the past continue to shape um, our you know, present time. Um, yeah, I highly recommend um, Yongsan. Um. Yeah, I appreciate the recommendation of Yongsan, and I think the the blockbusters are are, are interesting, perhaps as as uh, instances of studying historiography. Where I mean, uh, for for American listeners, like "Ode to My Father" is almost like a uh, like a Korean version of Forrest Gump, 
perhaps with yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> more conservative tendencies uh, than Forrest Gump. Uh, but yeah, certainly worth watching if you want to learn more. I wonder, are there any other films, you know, that that are a bit like Young Sun that you might want to recommend for folks who want to learn more about democracy and democratization in South Korea? Um, I mean, it's... It, um, I mean, um, this is an interesting question. <laughs> um, two films by independent film collectives are all I could think of right now. Um, one is a 2020 documentary titled Sewing Sisters. Um, it's about the struggle of women textile factory workers to win concessions on basic safety and health in the workplace in the 1970s. Um, the conventional history of this era focuses so much on how S South Korea's economy, you know, um, grew at an astonishing rate with its textile sectors booming. Um, it's very rare to hear the voices of, of women workers who, you know, fought for justice by organizing themselves. Um, so that's one beauty of this documentary, I think. Another thing that fascinates me is how this film challenges the dominant narrative of, narrative of democratization that has long privileged the voices of male activists and students, like more elite participants in you know, pro-democratic movements. Um, it's quite remarkable that these women, these protagonists, you know, now in their 60s and early 70s, they're still radiant and radical. And their stance toward what they, you know, I don't know, they, their stance toward uh, what they did doesn't really seem nostalgic. It's more reflective. It's more, um, I don't know, forward looking. Um, in many ways, I think film invites us to meditate on their practices of care and solidarity that they imagined in the past and how these practices could still embolden us even now. Um, I also found a feature film titled Microhabitat quite interesting. Um, in Korean, it's called Sogongnyo. Um, it's one of the um, earlier production by a film collective named Gwangamun Cinema. And it's about a woman in her 30s surviving um, Seoul's national um, neoliberal capitalism. Um, in many ways, I do think that this film provokes more generative questions about South Korea's polarized economy, um, precarious labor market, and social ladder than Bong Joon-ho's Parasite does. Um, the filmmaker does a really great job showing the protagonist navigating precarity of a life in a city that doesn't seem to be built for the dis disadvantaged like her. And along the way, we get to ask ourselves, I mean, at least I ask myself multiple times, like what it means to desire to live a quote-unquote better life. Or is it possible to be free from the web of neoliberal capitalism? Um, or is it possible to imagine an alternative economy that's based on care, intimacy, and interconnectedness? The film is slightly over on half an hour, um, so it's not long as a feature film. 
but the questions that it provokes will be sticking with you for a while. Uh, it's more like a black comedy than a dark, dry um, drama. Um, I mean, I don't want to give you too much detail. I would say just watch it and let me know what you think. Sounds good. So there's Sewing Sisters, which is 2020, and then Microhabitat, which seems like it's 2017. Uh, so yes, both are fairly correct. recent films. Uh, and I guess listeners, you can Google and, and find ways to see them uh, wherever you are in the world. Um, <laughs> well, thank you very much, Hyun. This was a very enriching conversation. Um, really like being able to dive deep alongside with you into the intersections of uh, South Korean film and politics. And I think also just, you know, the book provides a lot of perspective on things that are kind of implicit and provide roots to a lot of the popular Korean media that uh, people consume today, which, you know, don't get talked about as much, uh, especially in English language media. So uh, listeners, uh, if you want to learn more about what we discussed in this episode, look for Hyun Kim's book. Uh, it's called Celluloid Democracy. Hyun, thank you very much again for coming on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to speak with you. <laughs>